0: Thanks for joining us on the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. We're excited to have Nick Cooney as the guest for today's episode. Nick Cooney founded and serves as the managing partner at Lever VC, an early stage venture capital fund focused on alternative protein startups. The alternative protein sector includes both plant-based meat and dairy companies. Nick's past investments in the space include companies such as Beyond Meat, Miyoko's Kitchen, sun-fed meats, and good catch foods, as well as clean meat or cultivated meat companies. Nick's investment in this space include Memphis Meats, Aleph Farms, and Avant Meats. Through Lever VC and his prior fund, Nick has invested in several dozen alternative protein companies globally, with a combined net value of over $7 billion. I had a great and interesting conversation with Nick, and I'm excited to share it with everybody. Let's jump right in. Welcome to the Cultured Meat and Future Food Show. We're excited to have Nick Cooney on the episode today. Nick, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Alex. Appreciate it.
0: Nick, tell us a little bit about your background.
1: Sure. So obviously, we're going to be chatting today about the alternative protein and cultivated protein space. So my background is certainly working in and around this space and these more general spaces for a number of years. Going back 16, 17 years at this point, been working around things like plant-based food, plant-based meat, promoting this category of products to consumers, and also working in other areas in the NGO sector that tied in with this, animal welfare and, and some related areas. In 2015, co-founded and then chaired the board for the first few years of the Good Food Institute. And in 2015, also began investing in the alternative protein space. So initially that was through a family office investment vehicle, through which uh, myself and a couple of colleagues that I work with there, we invested in some of the first companies in the sector, from, you know, companies like Memphis Meats, now Upside Foods, Geltor, Alec Farms, Mosin Meats, and some others. In 2018, I stepped away from that family office vehicle and started putting together the fund that I'm with now, which is Lever VC. And so Lever VC is a global early stage VC fund focused 100% on the off protein sector. So we invest both in plant-based meat and dairy and plant proteins, as well as all the types of companies on the higher tech side of all protein. So cultivated meat companies and dairy companies, fermentation-derived animal protein companies, companies, even we have one company in the portfolio producing animal protein recombinantly in plants, and then other technologies and similar to that tie into this sector. So we're Global Fund. You know, we've got portfolio companies in North America, Europe, Russia, Asia, Latin America, Middle East, and looking at companies globally in this sector. That's myself and my background.
0: That's exciting. And I'm excited to dig a little bit deeper into that. And for those listeners that are tuning in, if you are familiar with GFI's work, go to gfi.org and definitely consider supporting their work. I want to ask you, Nick, when did you first decide, you know, I think you said 15 or maybe 17 years ago, you started getting much more involved professionally. When did you decide to focus your efforts professionally on, I guess, that animal space?
1: Yeah. So it would be by late college. So I'm 40 now. When I was 18, I read the book Animal Liberation by Peter Singer. And for me, it was the first time I'd ever seen or heard or learned about the industrial treatment of farm animals and other animals and the implications that that has. And then after learning about that, certainly got exposed to all the other really harmful externalities of animal agriculture, the environment, health, et cetera, of course. And so for me, by the time I was exiting college 18 years ago at this point, it was clear to me, I, I'd come to believe that you know what I wanted to focus my life on was trying to create change in this area, because it was clearly an area where change could do so much good, reduce so much animal suffering, and have other positive benefits for the world, and there was relatively little work being done. In my first exposure to meat alternatives specifically was when I was 18, I also decided to start eating plant-based myself and have been since. And, you know, back then the options were basically dry, crumbled, textured vegetable protein or plant-based meat in a can. Now, at least that's everything I could find those first couple of years. So uh, definitely that sector has come a long way since then. For me, my interest, personal interest has definitely remained in doing what I can to reduce animal suffering, including through helping grow, invest in, and support this alternative protein sector.
0: What a long way we have come from protein in a can. And I'm really excited to really, if I was to like set a theme for this discussion, it would really be to be future focused. You mentioned in the last 18 years or so, there has been so many different shifts. And I really want to talk to you about, for example, the next 10 years or maybe even the next 18 years as we're looking to the future of alternative proteins and maybe even removing the word alternative from that statement. And so what do you envision? And I know this is a big, broad question, but in the next 10, 15 years, what kind of changes do you think we will see to the food industry?
1: Yeah. So I would share the view of probably a lot of your listeners that alternative protein in all of its forms, including plant-based and self cultivated and fermentation derived and so on, is going to play an increasing role, an increasing part of that system and protein supply chain. In terms of how much of that change we'll see in the next 10 to 12 years, certainly we see a range of projections on how quickly that protein sector will grow. Some I would view as incredibly and unrealistically overly optimistic. And this would include some from advocacy organizations, but also some of the reports and projections we've seen from investment houses, places like UBS and Bank of America and so on. But I do think the sector is clearly going to keep growing quite significantly. I think these things take time because food is something that in most parts of the world, and certainly here in the U.S., people are generally fairly slow to change. They might try novel things here and there, but it generally shifts very slowly. And it also just takes time for new technologies to disseminate, for the price points to get where they need to be, for consumer awareness and then acceptance to increase. So I think that we've seen in the past five, seven years on the plant-based meat and dairy side, I think we'll see something similar in the next five, 10, 15, 20 years on both the plant-based and also the the higher side protein side. Where do I think we'll be 10, 12 years from now? I certainly think that plant-based meat in particular and also plant-based dairy will be significantly larger percentages of the market than they are now. It'll be more widely distributed around the world, wider range of products, wider range of price points, just wider availability and convenience and so on. In my view, the biggest change we're going to see in the next five to 10 years is the addition of animal proteins produced without live animals making their way into plant based products and providing a lot better flavor, a lot better texture, functionality, even at fairly modest inclusion ratios that makes the price absorbable. And that that improvement in those things, especially taste and flavor and texture and so on, that's going to really help fuel the growth of the category. So if you think of what did fast food look like vis-a-vis alternative protein seven years ago? There was nothing there essentially whatsoever. Where is it today, most of the big fast food chains, or at least many of the big fast food chains, have plant-based meat. Part of that is increasing consumer interest, but I think more significantly than that, the biggest reason is there were finally one or two companies that developed products that were tasty enough to work in those markets and at the the level that they've worked in. And I think that in the next five to ten years, we're going to take and we're starting to take that next significant step up in the quality of products, again, with these animal proteins being used as functional ingredients and produced without live animals in the supply chain. And so I think that's going to significantly widen the market for these products, both in the US and globally. So, yeah, I think what does it look like 10, 12 years from now? Plant based meat and dairy are a significantly a higher percentage than they are right now. There's a lot of products that are primarily plant based, but with animal proteins produced through one of these methods. And those things are all poised to continue to grow in the next 10, 20, 30 years for all of the macro trends and resource reasons and so forth that your listeners are pretty familiar with, I imagine. And
0: when you're referring to, for example, adding cultivated meat or let's say cultivated fat to plant-based products, that would be kind of this hybrid approach that really more of us are talking about. Is that right?
1: Exactly. So I would take throughout specific company examples, which I'm sure you're familiar with and your listeners are. Perfect Day being the obvious example that's on the market now with their whey protein produced by fermentation and that being used in a variety of applications now from ice creams to cream cheese and so forth. But then indeed on the meat side, things exactly like Fat Mission Barnes, for example, and they're using a small percentage of their cultivated pork fat in otherwise plant-based meat. I've had these products. Lever VC is an investor in Mission Barnes. I was out there about a month ago, was able to try some of their most recent products, which are meat products with cultivated pork fat added, things like sausage and meatballs. And it's just incredible. When I had Beyond Burger for the first time, or when I had Impossible Burger for the first time, those were distinct memories that when I had them, the feeling that, okay, wow, this is clearly much better than anything that's come before in the category, having the products from Mission Barns that are, again, mostly plant-based, small bit of cultivated pork fat, exactly the same experience. Wow, these are way better than anything that's come before. Much better than Impossible, better than Beyond, far more meat-like. This is just the next step up. And I think we're going to keep seeing those next steps up. And often that's, I think, in terms of flavor, but it can also be in, in terms of texture in certain areas in categories like cheese can be in terms of functionality, like how stretchy it is and so forth, getting casein proteins into uh, otherwise plant-based cheese. So right, think things along those lines.
0: I think the video is floating around the internet, but Mission Barnes put out a really cool promo video with their partnership with Silva Sausage Co. So if we can find that, I'll link it in the show notes for the listeners. So I see that the Lever VC team is pretty internationally distributed. I wanted to ask you about adoption of alternative proteins, specifically in the APAC region. And what I want to ask is, do you think that North America and Europe will be able to increase adoption of alternative proteins faster than APAC?
1: In the short term, yes, because there's just much more consumer familiarity in the category and consumer increase in the values and beliefs that would drive further consumption. So more sort of ethical concerns around sustainability, to some extent, animal welfare. Also health, but, but health is also quite a prominent concern in APAC. So I do think that both as a function of that increased consumer belief in the benefits of Alt protein in the West right now, and also as a function of the category being just more fully developed and there being a lot more companies, and by virtue of that, some that are particularly good, both in quality and in branding, I think that the West will keep growing more quickly than APAC for the short term. I guess it depends how we define terms here, right? So I'm thinking more in terms of dollar sales and things like that. If we're talking about a percentage basis, APAC may well grow more quickly because it's starting from a smaller sales base. That being said, I think in the long run, there's significant reason to believe that APAC could overtake Western Europe and the US in that. If we look at a place like China, for example, our team is pretty international for Lever VC. Our central office is actually in Hong Kong. We've got team members in mainland China, Hong Kong, Singapore and have invested in a variety of companies around the space. So from the global fund, we've invested in five in Asia. We also have an affiliated sidecar vehicle that's, by the end of this month, we'll have invested in 12 companies in mainland China. So pretty strong ear to the ground there. A lot of investors there, colleagues there, et cetera. So in China, if you look at the surveys that have been done, there is, at least by way of survey results, which are not always the most reliable thing, but for whatever they're worth, we see more interest in alternative protein, both on the plant-based and on the cultivated meat side in China than we do basically anywhere else. So there've been a couple of surveys done in China about interest and desire to eat cultivated meat, including one that uh, one of our companies did directly, but also some public ones. And they found anywhere from 70 to 80% of the public in China being interested in cultivated meat compared to, depending how you word the survey, somewhere between 35 and 55% in typically found in the West. If you look at consumer attitudes around the healthfulness of plant-based protein and meat alternatives relative to chicken, pork, beef, there's significantly higher belief in those health benefits of plant protein relative to conventional animal meat in China than you would find in the US or Western Europe. And there's also more familiarity with having non-animal proteins be a part of a meal, like not necessarily the exclusive protein section of the meal, but having things like tofu or gluten on your plate alongside your grains, your vegetables, alongside your animal meat as well. It's starting from a more close uh, place than the American and Western European palate had been at least as of five or 10 years ago. So I think for all those reasons, plus the rapidly increasing protein consumption per capita that's going on in Asia, plus strong interest from some governments in Asia. Singapore, certainly most publicly and prominently, but the, the Chinese government is very supportive of the sector as well. Last year, Reuters reported that China's government announced three areas within food and food production that they were going to be really pushing for far and direct investment into. One was, if I remember correctly, one was pork and one was poultry. I might have one of those wrong, but two were conventional animal protein. The third was plant-based meat. You also have the chinese government supporting research academic research in both plant-based and cultivated meat you have the chinese government has put in place uh, very good industry-friendly labeling nutrition requirements for plant-based meat there's just a lot of government support for the benefits of this category for nutrition resource use and allocation other reasons of like food security and other reasons as well long answer short Short term, indeed, Western Europe and North America will keep growing more quickly because of the number of companies, the quality of the products, the consumer familiarity with the benefits of these products. But in the mid to long run, you think a lot of the value that's to be created in this category is definitely going to come from APAC.
0: As I'm thinking about this, it makes me think about the opportunity that as meat consumption is growing in some of these regions, maybe we can get to a point where we skip over the building of infrastructure for slaughterhouses and go right to building the infrastructure for plant-based and cell cultured or cultivated meats, similar to how we saw that, for example, landline infrastructure skipping directly to cell phone infrastructure. Maybe we still have the opportunity to do that.
1: Would be an excellent thing, absolutely.
0: So when we're looking at the Lever VC portfolio, it seems like there's many recognizable names for sure. Can you tell me a little bit about the overall thesis for Lever VC?
1: Sure. And we can get into more granular detail about some of the subsectors within alt-protein. I would say from a high level, as I shared my view on earlier, we certainly think, uh, like I imagine you and many of your listeners think that the alt-protein sector is going to keep growing for quite some time. And it's going to take a much more significant share of the market than it has right now. We think there's opportunity both on the plant-based meat and dairy side, because those categories will keep growing quite significantly, and the pie is going to get a lot larger than it is right now. And so that presents opportunity both here in the U.S. and the West, but also in emerging markets where there's not clear big winners. There's going to be a Beyond Meat and Impossible Foods of China, of Latin America, et cetera, the Gulf region. And they're almost surely going to be local companies. And they're probably local companies that were founded in the past year or two or will be founded in the next one or two or three years. So we see big opportunity on the plant-based meat and dairy side, not in every geography, but overall. And we also see big opportunity on the higher tech side of protein, thus the investments in the cultivated, fermented and recombinant in plants, animal protein, again, all context-specific, right, in terms of what's the category that's being addressed, what's the geographic region, what's the strategy, who's the team executing the strategy, all those things. So we consequently do invest both on the plan-based side, where it's much more formulation, brand-driven, straightforward CPG investments, uh, just within this operating category, as well as the tech-driven higher chances of failure, but if it works, potential for very large exits, that side of the spectrum as well. Like I mentioned, I do think that those fields are far less binary than they're sometimes assumed because at least in the next 5, 10, 15 years, the vast majority of animal proteins produced by these other methods are going to be used in a service of better plant-based products. Our view is there's opportunity across both of these areas. It's just about making smart bets. Beyond that, as you can probably tell by how international I've noted that the fund is, we do think that Absolutely. There's a lot of opportunity, of course, in the U.S., of course, in Western Europe and places like the U.K. and Germany, where there's large and growing markets. And so we make a lot of investments in those regions. But we also do think there is significant opportunity in developing markets for the category. So we are completing now our third investment in Brazil. We invested in Russia. As mentioned, we have investments in Asia, including in China. We do think, as I noted, that the category leaders in these regions are being built now and will be built in the next couple of years. And these sectors are starting from a much smaller base in those regions. But there's every reason to expect these sectors to have the same type of success that they're having in Western Europe and the U.S. currently. And so for an early stage investor, I think there could not be a better time than now to be getting into those markets, as long as one does so wisely, of course.
0: You mentioned a a few subsectors. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Sure. There's various types of categories that we may see or be sent deals in that we would pass for category specific reasons. So an example or two would be if there was a company in the US that was a focused on plant based burgers, the odds of us investing in them are incredibly vanishingly slim because of the level of competition there. Even a plant based fluid milk company in the US or some of the other more developed markets like in the UK or something we'd be very hard-pressed to invest just because of the level of competition that's already there. The other type of category that would lead us to not invest in a deal would be if the category is just not large enough. So we have seen some companies primarily on the plant-based side, but you see some of these on the cultivated side as well, going after product categories that are just not that big. And so when you think about say, a self-cultivated company, the lifetime CapEx requirements, or on the plant-based side, the work that will need to grow into building a brand, et cetera, even if the company were to succeed and take something like half a percent market share from the incumbent conventional meat or dairy category you'd still have you know, maybe a successful lifestyle company that works out fine for the founders, but not one that's going to give meaningful, if any, returns for an investor. So the product category itself is not large enough. That would be another category-based reason for us to pass on a deal. Interesting, yeah. And it makes me think about
0: really how many plant-based chicken nuggets are out there. Do you think that is a
1: problem? Yeah, I guess the question is a problem for who? <laughs> I think it's definitely a problem for investors Let's use plant-based chicken as the example we work off of here. If we're talking about the US, right, there's a whole bunch of companies trying to address plant-based chicken right now. You have the ones like Beyond and Impossible. You've got the more incumbents like Morningstar and Gardein. You have a bunch of startups and then you have just a smattering of others. So is that going to be bad for some folks? So, I think that for investors in the companies that are not great bets there, yes, they're going to lose money for sure. I think there's a lot of investors that have been getting into the space in the past two years or so that might not know the space super well. And in our view, I would say we've definitely seen an increase in the number of what we would regard as not great bets. And again, it's typically from more generalist investors that just don't know the sector well enough to make well-informed bets. So I think on the investor side, yes, some investors are going to feel the pain from that. You know, I think there can be some downsides for the category in the number of companies because a lot of the products are not very good. That could turn consumers away. They might try it once or twice, think it's not good, and then just not go back again or anytime soon. Or you might have, say, a smaller food service chain, try out one of these products, you know, one, two, three, five-store restaurant chain, doesn't go very well. They pull it off the menu, and then they think the problem was plant-based meat generally, not the particular brand of plant-based meat that we were stocking. And again, folks that don't know the sector so well, I find that sometimes it's hard for their palate to predict what's going to work well with customers and what's not going to work well with customers. So I think that's a potential downside for the sector when you have a bunch of the entrants having a quality that's not very good. That being said, on the other hand, more competition for the category as a whole theoretically should result in ultimately a larger category and ultimately a better quality product for consumers at the end, just like when you have more intense competition in any sector of the economy. I think that's more theoretical than definitely going to be the case, but hopefully that will be the case. So hopefully the outcome of so many companies launching plant-based chicken lines or plant-based chicken startups being launched in the U.S., Hopefully this results in a situation where five, seven, eight years from now, we've got products on shelf that are higher quality than they would have been without all that competition and at more points of sale than they would have been without all that competition. I think the gravestones along that pathway are just companies that go broke or can't get beyond a very small size and therefore have negative returns or wipeouts for investors in them.
0: You make a lot of great points, and people do tend to generalize when they try plant based foods. They might think, I don't necessarily like plant based, but really it could have been that specific product that would be a problem. Fortunately, the Beyonds and Impossibles out there are doing us some good there. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about your thoughts on portfolio companies, or just maybe startups in general, going the self-branded and CPG route versus being primarily an ingredient company? And maybe they're not mutually exclusive, but what are your thoughts on a brand going the CPG route versus acting as an ingredient supplier?
1: We generally think it's a good thing. Not necessarily do that at the exclusion of having a B2B focus, but as a way to prove out the value of one's products or ingredients. We do have, in the Lever BC portfolio, I would say probably 40% of the companies in there, or thereabouts, are ultimately B2B ingredients companies. Like long-term, that's the strategy, that's the value that they have. But virtually all of them are also having a branded component to what they do. And it's often that reason of, well, I guess multiple reasons. The same reasons why we think that is a good thing so one would be the b2b sales cycles when you're talking about selling to a major bn customer they're just really long companies can take a very long time for product development they can take a very long time to bring new products to market they can be very conservative when we're talking about large companies that would be ultimately doing large purchase orders potentially so yeah, just can be very slow if you're 100% reliant on the B2B approach. Secondly, if we look at innovation in food, and maybe this is different for some other sectors, but at least within food, nearly all of that innovation is coming from independent, smaller companies. So there's just this inherent conservatism in with large food companies. And I think as we have new products, categories, and products that utilize novel ingredients the use of those and the popularization of those is probably going to continue to come from independent companies, ones that are moving more quickly, ones that are perhaps mission-driven, more brand-driven. And so I think you name the self-cultivated meat or dairy or fermentation-derived meat or dairy ingredient, and I think it's going to get some market share, some headlines, some consumer interest and in trial, et cetera, much more quickly via independent brands than it is via large companies. I think the large companies come at a slightly later stage, just like we saw happen in plant-based meat itself or in plant-based dairy itself. We think for that reason that it definitely makes sense and is a good thing for companies, even if they are ultimately a B2B play, to think quite closely at and lean towards having a branded line as a product demonstration, not putting huge amounts of money into building up that brand, but using it as a way to demonstrate, here's the ingredient we have, here's what it can do. Look, consumers like it. And, you know, eat it up literally and, and metaphorically. And of course, there's different ways to do that. But you can have your own in-house brand to showcase that. You can also work with other smaller, more fast moving companies to have them use the ingredient. I think there's some different ways to do it, but having one's own brand as a showcase, I think is a quite good and valid strategy. Lastly, and this may or may not contribute to the ultimate value of the company, but it is also just the case that brands can generate more interest. And if you're a startup or even a mid-stage company and you're going to want or need more investor funding, having a brand can just generate more interest and more dollars coming in the door than if it's purely a B2B play. And so it's also a way I think to help generate that enthusiasm from investors and therefore more money and ability to grow with that money. And it could be the case that long term there's some value in having your own brand as well. Of course it depends on your category and how well your brand does and so on and so forth. But you know at the end of the day, four, five, seven years in the future, you're either purely a B2B ingredients company or you're largely a B2B ingredients company, but you've also got a nice healthy brand that you develop yourself that's a big bolt on an additional value that the company has that an acquirer will have in mind and will pay for in acquiring you. So for all those reasons, we think it's generally more often than not a good thing to have alongside a B2B strategy.
0: And your team invests at pretty early stages. Is that right?
1: That's right. So for us, first investment would most typically be seed stage, sometimes pre-seed and then follow-ons into A and B. We don't exclusively do that. You know, we've done first checks into series A. We're doing a first check into a series B this month, most likely, but uh, generally, yes, we're starting at seed stage.
0: And how important is it to like receive a product sample and actually try the product before making an
1: investment? If the company has something that's edible and on the market are going to be on the market soon, absolutely critical. So certainly any company we look at on the plant-based space We not only are trying all of their products, we're trying all of the competition's products, even if we've had them before, just to be able to do that side by side comparison and kind of refresh our memory on that. And also in a number of cases, particularly in markets where we don't know the category quite as well as others, doing small focus groups of consumers to have other people taste the products as well. So we're not 100% relying on our own palate there. So yeah, definitely critical. And we don't and wouldn't invest in a client-based company unless we felt they were in the number one or number two slot in terms of how good their product tastes in their product category and in their broad geographic region, like country or continent. If it's a company on the higher tech side, most of those don't have a product at the time that we're investing.
0: So I'm just getting motivated and excited about new companies coming about. So hopefully some of those listeners are getting motivated if they're thinking about starting a company to really get into the space. A couple more questions before we wrap up. This is another kind of future thinking one. Do you think that some of the existing meat companies will eventually switch to primarily plant-based or cultivated, at least one of the companies in the space in the next 10 plus years?
1: So good question. I mean, we've seen a few examples on the dairy side where a struggling dairy company was clearly not going to make it stay in the conventional fluid milk category. So they decided to kind of shift gears and turn to plant-based as their potential option back to profitability and continued existence. And it's certainly worked out well for at least a couple of them so far. I think there is one or two smaller meat companies that are going through or have gone through exactly that, at least in Europe. I'm struggling to think of an example in the US, but there's one or two examples in Europe in that category. So I I do think that there will be some on the smaller side, meat companies that embrace plant-based or cultivated and shift 100% to it. It's hard to see any of the mid sized to large meat companies embracing any sort of all-in strategy anytime soon, maybe far down the line. But I think it's much more likely to be a product line in a wider suite than a full conversion anytime soon.
0: One example that I think comes to mind, I think Noble Jerky was a company making conventional beef jerky, and then they switched to plant-based. And I'm not sure if the one in Europe you were thinking of, but... Raka Nutrition was, I think, a protein powder company and they switched completely to plant paste. But I definitely can see that maybe we'll see more of the smaller players make that shift and get into that,
1: which is pretty exciting. Interesting. I'd heard of both of those companies you mentioned before and been to their websites and so on, but had not realized that either or both of them had made a full switch. So super interesting.
0: And that's good for the industry. <laughs> yeah. For investors that are currently angels or maybe in smaller funds that are currently investing in non-food technologies. Do you have any advice for them to kind of suggest them to move and make investments that are a little bit more mission-driven in the food space? What advice might you have for those investors?
1: The biggest one would be to not be overconfident in one's ability to make a smart judgment if you don't have the amount of knowledge anyone needs to make a smart judgment. What I would view as bad investments that we see, you know, I think that the most common reason for that is an investor that doesn't know the sector super well, there's a short number of companies that are sort of on the radar in this space, right? Maybe it's 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, small number. And within the given category, like let's say they're looking at cultivated meat, right? They may have heard of three, four, five, six cultivated meat companies. They may have talked to zero to two, call it maybe three. And then they talk to one and they get the pitch, here's why we are special, here's why we're different, here's how we're better than everyone else, here's like how we get to a low price point. And if one hasn't had the same conversation with 10, 15, 20 other cultivated meat companies, it can be very difficult to distinguish what's spin and reality and what's uniqueness and novelty and actual differentiation from what isn't any of those things. So I think it's just not having a wide enough frame of reference, having enough similar examples that one's looked at before to then be able to better assess a particular deal. And in that way, I think alt protein, including high tech alt protein and food generally is no different than any other category, right? That would be the same if you're investing in crypto, cannabis, medical devices, whatever it is. I think there just can be that human overconfidence or just, I don't know, perhaps it's just lack of conscientiousness and diligence to really thoroughly understand something before making an investment. So I would say for an investor that hasn't done food before and is looking to seize there is opportunity in something like All Protein and wants to start making an investment better too, to have a bunch of conversations, chat with a bunch of companies instead of one or two. And also certainly feel free to reach out to funds like ours and people like myself and others who do have the experience in working and investing in the space just for insight to consider.
0: You can learn more about Lever VC at www.levervc.com and more about Nick on LinkedIn. Nick, do you have any last insights for our listeners today?
1: The only thing I'll add is, and this is picking up on a point that you made a bit earlier, Alex, if there's anyone listening that's been thinking about launching a company in the space, would definitely encourage them to keep thinking about doing that and work towards doing it. And if there are folks that are thinking about doing it, even if it's just at the initial iteration stage, even if it's, I think I I would like to work in this space. I think I'd like to start a company. I'm not really sure what the best opportunities are or how to go about that. Would definitely welcome and encourage any such folks to email us, email me. My email is nick at levervc.com. We've worked with a number of other entrepreneurs from the earliest of stages and helping them conceptualize like what are those white space opportunities in this space? How does one go about starting a company, finding investors? Can we help? How can we help? So we definitely welcome anyone who's even thinking about entrepreneurship to reach out and if we can help we would love to help.
0: Nick, thank you so much for joining us on the Future Food Show. Thank
1: you, Alex. And thanks for doing the show in general.
0: This is your host, Alex, and we look forward to seeing you on our next episode. This program was produced by H Media. We'll see you soon.